So that's hell, or is it? Ooh, um, hell. Hell is not something that is really fun to talk about. Um, but I think a big part of that is that, yeah, most of us get this sense that hell is a place of punishment. And we're going to unpack what the Bible talks about hell, but I'm going to do it through the form of five different myths that people believe about hell. Okay, so we're going to go through five different statements uh, that are pretty... I would say common, maybe even if you don't know it consciously, is something that you might have heard unconsciously or in another form. Maybe people have spoken about this to you before. Uh, but are you ready to go? Five myths about hell. The first one is this. The Bible doesn't speak about a literal hell. Uh, it, it uses metaphors only. So hell is not a literal place. It's a metaphor. That is what some people say. In 2011, um, I was scrolling through Facebook. Yes, Facebook existed nine years ago in, in a very early form. Um, it hadn't taken over the whole world yet, but um, enough people used it. And I saw a clip uh, from an author named Rob Bell. And Rob Bell was promoting his new book called Love Wins. And in this promo clip, he puts forward this question. How do we reconcile a place of eternal punishment with a God that is supposed to be love? How do we put two and two together? How do Christians really believe God and hell coexist? Because if hell is a place of eternal punishment, that is a pretty severe, cruel thing, a cruel place. So can Christianity actually believe in a literal hell if we are to also believe in a God of love? That's what he put forward. I was intrigued. I bought the book. I read the book. And I was severely disappointed because Rob Bell... Um, basically doesn't use good studies. He uses fanciful thoughts. He uses the Bible. He calls himself a Christian. He really isn't a Christian because he doesn't believe a lot of the stuff in the Bible. Uh, but there's another note for another time. But he begins to kind of unpack this and say, well, let's have the starting point as God is love. And God being love would not like to torture people forever. And, and so therefore hell cannot exist. And so maybe hell isn't literal, it's just a metaphorical kind of a space. And, and he uses that because of his understanding of love. He didn't use it based on the biblical understanding of love. He uses it based on his understanding of love. And that is a really interesting and important thing that we are going to talk about in point five. So you have to stay with me through another few more myths before we get there. But, but I just want to kind of preface this by saying that when we say God is love, we're not talking about a big cuddly Santa Claus. We're talking about the God of the universe, the God who created heaven and earth and put all these systems, all these laws, all of these principles in place. And that is His love that He enables us to live really amazing, abundant lives in the place that He has created for us. That is a part of love. We're not talking about this touchy-feely, oh, I love you, I will go to the moon for you, and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 we're not talking about this weird, um, sweet nothings. We're talking about a very substantial love. We cannot go to pop culture to define God's love. You know, the, one of those old school songs came back over the radio recently where, I don't know, is it Tony Braxton? I have no idea. I, oh, oh no, not that one. 
Sorry, but there's a, I, I know that the modern guy that did a take on it, Kaigo, he did, Kaigo, I think that's his name, and he did the whole thing of what's love got to do with it. Is that Tina Turner? There we go. I knew someone was old school enough. Um, and Tina Turner says, what's love got to do with it? What, is, isn't love just a secondhand emotion, just something that you get caught up with in the moment? I don't think God thinks that love is a secondhand emotion. He is God of love. He created love. We understand love because we are the ones that receive it secondhand from Him. Our understanding of love needs to come from God. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole soapbox in itself. We will talk about that in point five. But one of the things that, as I was reading Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, um, he, he makes a lot of nice, fanciful ideas. God, being love, will not make humans suffer for eternity, which sounds good in theory, right? And so I was like, how, how are you going to back this up, bro? Like, you can't just make statements. You can't just, if God is love, He'll give me a... I was going to say Mazda. I was, why are you saying Mazda? I don't want a Mazda. I want a... I want a Maserati. That's I want a Mazda. I just want a new car. And this is, let's be honest. If God loves you, give me a new car. Um, you know, it's not just one of those kind of thoughts. And, and so he, he does use the Bible very poorly. Um, don't, don't read the book. Um, I've made a recommendation on our app on a book that responds to, to this whole question of what is hell like. You can borrow it from our library. Um, but, but one of the things that he does say that is really interesting that is actually from the Bible is that Jesus speaks a lot about hell. In fact, all of the, uh, the records of hell in the Bible, Jesus speaks the most about hell. Jesus doesn't shy away from hell. He talks a lot about hell, but he uses metaphorical language. And one of the metaphors that Jesus uses for hell is the word Gehenna. We, oh, if you're more Jewish than my, myself, Gehenna. <laughs> I can't do it. Gehenna. Uh, but Gehenna is basically the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom is a real place. I, I've got a map up, I think is one of the pictures. And Gehenna is the Ben Hinnom Valley or the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem. If you look at this picture, you can see in the far distance, Mount Moriah. That is actually the Temple Mount. There's that over there. So um, that's kind of where the city limits would be. And the, the, the Ben Hinnom Valley, the Valley of Hinnom is outside. And um, Rob Bell puts forward, as some other theorists do, that the Valley of Hinnom is a place where uh, the Jewish people burnt rubbish. It's a rubbish tip. And so the whole idea of eternal fire comes from the Valley of Hinnom always having this fire going and going and going so that when people have rubbish, they would go outside of the city walls to burn their rubbish. It kind of somewhat makes sense. Uh, so the Valley of Hinnom, uh, Gehenna, is a stinky place. That's where you burn the rubbish. It is also a dirty place. It's, it's your local tip. And, and more than that, for Jewish people, it is also a defiling place because when you go to a place that is unclean, you become unclean. And, and so, um, so he, he was, this, this is the idea that the Valley of Hinnom is not a good place. It's not a nice place. However, Rob Bell puts forward, because God is love and doesn't want to punish us forever, according to his thinking, that perhaps we have got the metaphor wrong. Maybe it's not so much that we are the rubbish, 
that is being tipped into the Valley of Hinnom, but rather we bring our rubbish to Gehenna so that our sinful lives are burned off and then we can re-enter the city purified. Kind of makes sense, right? Kind of sounds good, right? Except it has got no backing. Ha, gotcha. <laughs> there is no evidence whatsoever that the Ben Hinnom Valley was a rubbish tip. The, it, it wasn't. It might have been, but it wasn't what the people in that time would have been thinking about when Jesus used the word Gehenna. Gehenna, according to more well-known scholars, believe that the people of that time would have known this reference. Gehenna was a dark, evil place where in the darkest period of Israel's history, their kings bowed down to a false god named Molech. And Molech demanded child sacrifice. The Valley of Hinnom was a place where children were mercilessly thrown into the fire for the sake of appeasing a false god. It was because of this kind of idolatry that Israel lost its place, lost its land, was brought into exile because they worship a god that demanded the lives of their children. So when the people of Israel heard of Gehenna, they were thinking of a deeply dark, evil place. And, and some sociologists talk about this when they studied history. When a society is so depraved that for their own sakes, they would sacrifice their children. That for their own good, or what they thought was their own prosperity, my, my life when I'm willing to sacrifice my child for my life, that's what child sacrifice to Molech was all about. I will give you the life of my child so that you bless me. When a society is so depraved that they would sacrifice the future for the present, that place is doomed for destruction. And so Gehenna was a place that demonstrated the loss of future literally because children were being killed, but also because society is so self-seeking, so depraved that they must be destroyed before they destroy more people. When Jesus used the word Gehenna to describe hell, he was describing a place of no future. He was describing a place where where it demonstrated the depravity of human beings that needed to be stopped before they continued their depravity and sacrificed more lives. Hell is not a temporary place of purification. Hell is a place, a literal space that is being given for the punishment of people who are filled with sin. Yes, Jesus uses a lot of metaphors about hell. I just want to put a few up for you so that you can see this. In Matthew 13, he talks about it. Uh, sorry, Matthew 7, he talks about it being the exclusion from God's presence. We're going to talk about that in a moment. He talks about it being the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, you know, there's suffering, so much suffering there. Uh, is a fire, is darkness. And then in Revelation, we see a few more metaphors. Is a second death, is punishment, is restlessness. And we can see we can see that some of these metaphors um, are actually opposing to each other. Because if you think of you know, fire and darkness, eternal fire, if there's eternal fire, how can there be eternal darkness? 
It doesn't quite make sense, does it? You know, it, so, and that's part of um, uh, why people put forward that hell is just a metaphorical space because of these metaphors that don't quite make sense. It talks about second death, but then it talks about all of these other punishments as well. So how can hell be a literal place when these metaphors don't match up? Why does the Bible not give us a literal account of, hey guys, listen up, this is hell. Let me give you a picture of it. And I understand that because sometimes it is kind of like, yeah, why can't you be a bit more clear about what hell is like? And I started thinking about this. Do you know the Bible doesn't actually describe every single thing in a literal way? It doesn't. It doesn't talk about God's love in a literal way. It talks about it in very many metaphorical ways. That Jesus, uh, that God is our provider, He is our protector, He is our uh, uh, lover, He is our friend, He is our father. Some of these metaphors don't quite match up. Why do we do that? When it comes to God's glory, we get even more metaphors that it is bright, that it is blinding, that it is that Jesus in His glory has a sword coming out of His mouth. Oh my gosh, what the heck is going on? Maybe because God's glory is indescribable. And I think as Christians, we go like, yes, yes, God's glory, indescribable, indescribable. And we sing all those songs about how amazing God's glory is that we can't describe it. Well, you know what? Hell is indescribable in its way. It's a place of darkness, but it's a place of eternal fire. It's a place of death, but it's a place of restlessness. It's a place of punishment. It's a place of suffering. It's a place of exclusion from God's presence. Yes to all of them in its own way, but maybe our human language can't quite comprehend what hell is really like. Jesus calls hell a place of eternal punishment not a metaphorical space that you just enter and exit. In Matthew 25, 46, he says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If we don't understand hell as eternal punishment, then in that statement, we also don't understand that we get eternal life. If we say eternal punishment is a metaphor uh, uh, for just this transitionary period, then eternal life must also therefore be just a transitionary period. We don't like to talk about hell as a literal place because it jars us and it scares us. But we need to be able to see in that way. One of the theologians puts it this way, Richard Niebuhr says, attempts to deny hell is to create a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. If we would understand the power of the cross, if we see that as the ultimate act of sacrifice, then it necessarily needs to come with judgment that God is bringing us away from. It needs to bring us to a place where, where sin and wrath are real and therefore hell is also real. We're gonna come back to this point, but I just want you to see this. When we diminish hell, we diminish the cross. When we diminish hell, we diminish the cross. When we deny hell, we deny the cross. And we're gonna come back to that point. But onto our second myth, 
Hell is a place where Satan and his demons reign and where they torture people sent there. That's what the clip was supposed to show at the start in case you're all like, what is Nate trying to show us? In the Good Place series, they showed that demons were preparing hell and they were finding and innovating different ways to torture human beings because it was their job and it was fun. And so they're like, let's do this. Let's pull out their toenails. Let's bat their heads around with like beach balls and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that kind of thought that, that um, Satan and his demons reign in hell was actually really made popular uh, by, pop, uh, by pop culture. In the 17th century, there was a man named John Milton. He was an English poet, and he wrote an epic poem. They literally call it an epic poem uh, called Paradise Lost, and it's called an epic poem because it has 10,000 lines. This one poem actually filled up something like five or six books, one poem. I don't know if you can call that a poem or it's just a novel that rhymes. I don't know. Like Any English scholars here that can tell me why it's still considered a poem when it has 10,000... Anyway, side note. But in this... I don't know. Why would you read a 10,000 line poem? Anyway, people did. Maybe because they didn't have Netflix and and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, what did we read today? Oh, this 10,000 line poem. And in this 10,000 line poem, uh, John Milton writes um, Satan saying this very, very famous line, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Better reign in hell than serve in heaven. That is not in the Bible. That's in Paradise Lost, a poem that shouldn't be called a poem. And, and, and in the 14th century, this one might be a little bit more popular, but John Milton's words have actually become part of our popular understanding about what hell is like. That actually shaped generations and continues to shape generations of what we believe hell is like. Last night, we had uh, our, our neighbors uh, had a Halloween party, and I saw these guys dressed up, and they were dressed up as Satan, walking down, going, like, look at my pitchfork, I'm going to go sit at my committee in hell. I don't know, why do we think that being Satan is okay? Because we think that Satan actually has some kind of power. We think that Satan has some kind of dominion and we give that place a name called hell. Um, and in Dante's Inferno, in the 14th century, another poem, he describes how as humans descend and go into the different levels of hell, that there are demons there to torture us. And that is what demons um, role is supposedly that they are trying to dupe us into doing wrongdoing so that we go into hell so that they actually have a job. That's, I don't know, that's kind of what seems to be the popular understanding of hell. But do you know that that is a complete myth? Satan does not reign in hell. Hell is a place of Satan's punishment. Matthew 25, 41 says this, then he will say to those on his left, this is God bringing a judgment on judgment day, depart from me, you who are cursed, cursed because of sin. Uh, that sin brings a curse, that curse is death, that death is eternal death in hell. That's what that is all about. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now that sink in, hell was not originally created for you or for me. I hope I never go there anyway. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Why are they call angels? Because according to um, 
what seems to be recorded in the Bible. Satan, his original name is uh, Lucifer. He was one of the archangels and he defies God by thinking that he sets himself up against God, thinking that he's better than God. And he actually turns a third of the angels. We don't know if that's the exact number or if it's just a literary uh, use of the word, but Satan uh, convinces a third of the angels to rebel against God. God then uh, casts uh, Satan and his demons out of heaven um, and that's where we get Jesus saying I see Satan fall like lightning because he gets cast out of heaven and ultimately one day at judgment day we don't know the day and the time but at judgment day uh, hell is opened up to Satan and his demons for eternal punishment Satan doesn't reign in hell Satan didn't get a choice of going, you either serve God or have your own thing happening in hell. God didn't go, since you don't like me, let me prepare this place. It's not going to be anywhere near as nice as heaven, but you know what? Let me give you uh, the crown and the authority over hell. No, 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 that didn't happen. Hell was a place of punishment. Hell is Satan's prison. When we think of hell, it's not demons torturing us, it's demons being tortured. That is what hell is all about. And we need to be very clear that this is what the Bible teaches because it links to another myth that we need to be very careful about. The third myth is that hell is simply separation from God where people just go on living without God. You see, what some people think is that hell, and some people say, oh, you know, this is like hell on earth. And we talk about how, you know, there are certain things that are happening on earth, which is basically hell. And to some extent, perhaps it is a glimpse of hell. Um, but people just talk about it as though God is separate. And uh, without God, then this place becomes hell. And that's what hell is about. And the Bible does talk about separation from God as hell. But there is so much more that is happening here. And if we listen to this myth, what happens is this. When we link the second myth to this third myth, we think that simply what happens is that at the end of time, God takes all the ones that he likes and brings them to heaven, which we're talking about next week because there's a very wrong understanding of what heaven is. And anyway, so he takes all the ones that he likes and the ones he doesn't like or the ones that reject him stay with Satan. So it's like you either go with mom and dad or you stay at home. That's kind of what people think that hell is like sometimes. And they go like, hey, you know what? When I'm living in a self-seeking way, drink as much as I want, take whatever drugs I want, get as much money as I want, spend on whatever I want. We describe that as sinful but pleasurable. And then we think about what following Christ is like. You're following Christ and so you are denying self. You stop yourself from falling into temptation. You don't sleep around. Uh, you, you actually have to follow all these rules, read the Bible, pray every day, and all that kind of stuff. And so people get this mindset, right, that this kind of living, this living, this sinful living is pleasurable, and following God is not. And so we say, oh, if heaven is simply just going to be with God and being a bunch of like, uptight, 
do-gooders. I'd rather stay in hell where Satan reigns because Satan's the best party animal that there is on the face of this planet. Satan's like the best DJ. He's got the best music. He's got the best dance moves. He's got the best you know, party going on. Why would I not want to be here rather than go to cloudy heaven with baby angels floating around playing harps? So we're going to talk about it next week, but understand this. Hell is not just separation from God, and God says, go do whatever you want. That is the wrong interpretation of what the Bible tells us. Remember, I just want to bring this point back. If life on this earth is best enjoyed by living in sin, excess, lust, carefree living, alcoholism, partying, and God and Christianity is all about this high-strung party poopers that don't know how to lose up and have fun, then hell is going to be a lot more fun. When people have this understanding that hell is just where God isn't, then we can fall into this trap of thinking that hell is more fun. You can see such a person saying, I would rather be in the party pit of hell than the boring harp concerts of heaven. But is that what it really is? Separation from God is one of the aspects of hell. But remember, in the absence of God, Satan is not reigning. It doesn't mean that when God isn't there, he lets go of his reign. Just like right now, being in Australia, we are all technically under the jurisdiction of our prime minister. Our prime minister is not here in this room right now, but he has authority over us. Obviously, in Australia, it's a little bit different. He doesn't have complete authority over us, but his authority, what I'm trying to point out is that his authority is still here, even though he is not physically present. When God is not physically present in hell, it doesn't mean that he goes, oh, oh, well, because I don't like this place, I'm leaving it, and you get to take, no. He, he has already set up what hell is going to be, and as we've said, it's punishment for firstly, Satan and his demons, and then secondly, for all who have sinned and fallen short. This is all really intense. Could God really allow such a thing? And that kind of thinking can lead us to the fourth myth. And the fourth myth is this, that hell is better understood as complete annihilation. People just... Sorry, I was reading that. <laughs> Sorry. It's better understood as annihilation, which basically means you stop existing. There are some people that think that perhaps you will be punished for your sin and you go to hell, but you go to hell for the period of time in proportion to your sin. That is what annihilationism states, that either you immediately die and you disappear, you're off the face of existence, you're gone, or maybe you get punished for a period of time and then you are gone. The whole point of this is that people are saying that it is too hard to reconcile a God of love with eternal, the operative word being eternal punishment. This kind of thinking uh, has been condemned by the early church and continues to be condemned by uh, the, the church as heresy. It is not founded in God's word. It is founded when people take a portion of God's word, focusing on the words death and destruction, and saying, well, there you go. That must mean that 
hell is about just disappearing from existence. However, that stops us from listening to the other scriptures that talk about hell. In particular, I do want to focus on Revelation 20 verse 10. And this is what it says. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into a lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a really important principle for us to know. That when we read the Bible, we don't read one passage and go, well, that's the full truth. When we open the Bible and we read something, it's like, oh, okay. And then we match it with other parts of the Bible until we get a comprehensive view on the Word of God. This is what all of us should be doing. This is what Bible study is all about. Why is it important? Because if we don't do that, we fall into myths and misunderstandings about what God's intention and God's plan and God's principles are for us. And we end up with stupid ideas that Satan is reigning in hell having a big party or that we will just simply stop existing. And so what so bad about that punishment? I'll just live it up in this plane of existence and then I'll drop over to hell. Fine, I had 30 good years of fun. I'll have 30 bad years of punishment and then I stop existing. It's better than being those stupid heart-playing Christians anyway. You see, when we allow annihilationism to step into our thinking of what hell is like, we diminish the punishment, which means that we diminish the sin, we diminish the judgment, and like I've already mentioned, we diminish the cross. We need to understand this because what happens is this, that if we think, right, if we think that sin is like a paper cut, we will think that the cross is overkill. When we think sin is simply a paper cut, we will think, why the heck did you die to give me a band-aid? But when we understand that sin is more like a heart disease that is killing us and absolutely going to rot us from the inside out, then we understand that Jesus dying on the cross was a replacement, that His death brought me life. It is not about a paper cut healing over. It is not even about some small bruise that needs healing over. It is not about a, 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 a knee replacement. It's about a heart replacement. And when we think that the heart replacement is not needed, we think that the cross is absolute rubbish. And so this is where we need to come to the final myth. If we understand hell in its full, cruel description in the Bible, when we take hell with every part of what the Bible teaches, that is an internal, conscious, place of punishment God's love seems extremely absent and so we come up with statements like this a God of love wouldn't be okay with sending people to eternal damnation and like I said in 2011 I saw that and I thought yes gosh can I actually serve a God who would send people to eternal, conscious punishment. It may be a little bit scared, but as I read Rob Bell's book, as he puts forward this nicer version of hell and what God does, I found myself thinking, that's not a God of love. 
That's not God at all. Because if God is serving my interest and my needs fully without standing for justice, for what is righteous, that means that I'm God. When I deny God the ability to demonstrate justice and love in a definitive way, and I start to define what love and justice is, I stop God from being God, and I start thinking that I am God. See, at the end of the day, I'm actually okay with that statement. Our God of love is not okay. We're sending people to eternal damnation. But rather than erasing hell and toning hell down, what God did was so much better. Rather than toning down justice, rather than taking away what morality is, rather than taking away the standards by which human beings were created for, God did something else. He came in the form of a man, lived a sinless, pure life, died upon the cross, being the substitute, the perfect substitute for our sin so that we can have life. We need to come back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, every single one of us, that he gave his son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. Is God okay with people going to hell? No. But he didn't demonstrate it by getting rid of hell. He demonstrated it by giving us the option other than hell. You see, if God erased hell and simply forced us all to see that heaven was the only choice, if you will, the good place is the only choice. Is it really a choice? Would we really choose it? I don't think we would. We would go, ooh, I don't get a choice. I don't want that. Because human beings are stupid like that. When we think that we're not in control and when we think that we don't get choice, we choose the other thing. That is what Beck and I have um, been reading. A we read a book called Parenting with Love and Logic, which is a brilliant book on parenting, by the way. And basically, a big part, a big premise of the book is that for kids, because of their developmental uh, stage, what they do is that when you say this is the only option, they will actively find other options. Human beings are like that. Heaven is the only option because this is good for you. No, I'm going to find a better heaven than what you're giving me. I'm going to call it hell and there's a big party where Satan is my king. That's what our culture is telling us. But God didn't take away the options because those standards were created with eternal truth. God doesn't deal with a bending morality. We don't, and that is going to be in week three of this series. We're going to talk about what makes God a good judge. If you're kind of thinking about this and you're going like, you know, can we really trust that God will know what justice is? We'll talk about that in week three. But God didn't get rid of hell. He gave us a pathway to heaven. He did not need to. He did not need to. 
your heart condition, your sin rendered you a judgment that is worthy of hell according to the eternal standards of God's truth. But God was not okay with it, so he invaded earth, being in the form of a human, and gives us a route out of hell. There's no such thing as levels of sin. There's no such things as better sins or worse sins. There's just sin. It's a sin that kills, it's a sin that corrupts, it's a sin that destroys, it's a sin that needs to be punished. So there's hell. We're judged for it. We are sentenced to this. But we have the cross. How do you view the cross? Do you view, do you view the cross as something that was like, oh, that's nice? Or do you view the cross as, that's essential for my life? You know, Jesus said this. He said, those who have been forgiven much, loves much. Was he saying that to mean that there are different people with different levels of forgiveness? No, it is about your recognition of how much you need Jesus. And when I recognize my great need for Jesus, when I recognize how sin has corrupted, when I recognize what judgment is due to me, and then I see the cross, the cross is not just an add-on to my good life. The cross is the only way to life. And so, this morning, we are going to have communion. The host teams were giving out communion at the door. If you haven't received it, just give the host team a bit of a wave. This is the way that we have to do communion at this point in time because of COVID. But yes, you can prepare. And Ben, if we can get you up as well. I want you to seriously take this moment. What communion represents to us is another symbol. Is yet just another symbol. But it's a symbol of what Jesus has done. It gives us something tangible to hold on to in this moment. And before we go any further, once you prepare yourself, can I ask that you just close your eyes? And I want you to reflect. Do you see the cross as essential? Is the cross essential? Do you understand that without the cross, nothing else matters? Do you see that without the cross, all that we've got is hell? Do you see that without the cross, you are helpless, hopeless, condemned for eternity? But because of the cross, you have life and life abundantly. You have real and eternal life, more and better life, both in this, in this age and in the age to come. Do you see the cross as essential? Do you have moments in your life when you think about the cross and something wells up inside of you going, I am not worthy. I did not deserve this. This is not something 
that I could ever earn. The death of my Savior on the cross as a substitute so that I get to live where my death and my condemnation is placed on Jesus. Maybe you're seated here and you're going, man, I didn't, I didn't think about Jesus in that way. I didn't understand that it was the perfect representation of God's love. And if that is you this morning, I would like to lead you into a prayer to invite Jesus into your life. If you can repeat these words after me, Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. I know that I'm a sinner condemned to hell. But I also know that you came and died on the cross for my sin. I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.